Welcome to A Pint with Shawnee B, episode 116. A couple of housekeeping bits before we go. I'm going to just keep um, doing a little bit of a plug for the Patreon situation every couple of episodes now, if you don't mind. I'm hoping that more of you who are listening to it will go, you know, if we pay him his Patreon little bullshit, he'll stop having these silly intros to his podcast, which is probably true. Um, those of you who haven't yet subscribed to A Pint with Shawnee B, there is a system in place to contribute. Don't want to look at this as any kind of sense of charity or, you know, doing me a favor and more view it like you would view, say, the fact that you buy a cup of coffee every morning and a newspaper every morning and you spend five bucks on that or you subscribe to a magazine. The really interesting situation with the podcasting industry is of course it's growing so much podcasts have tapped a really interesting situation in terms of the media business where media owners and producers and agencies completely missed the hunger that's clearly out there globally for people to go deep and listen long to interesting conversations or shows we have this soundbite culture pervading which has gotten worse and worse and worse as technology has advanced and advanced and advanced we are in a sheep dip culture as i call it a 280 character on twitter culture a facebook culture where everything is kind of a facade and kind of fake and not not fake news in a donald trump uh, fake news way but fake news in a donald trump way if that makes sense so there's this kind of situation where podcasts are growing and growing and growing and in many ways what's also happening is big businesses starting to nose around advertisers are starting to nose around i was listening to blind boy uh, who's a famous irish podcaster bemoaning the fact that no advertiser is coming in to sponsor him I think he has something of the order of hundreds of thousands of listeners. I'm more like thousands of listeners. And he said that the reason advertisers are not coming in to support his show is, on the one hand, he deals a lot with mental illness. Um, he is trying to destigmatize mental illness, which can only be a good thing. And he talks very frankly and openly about his mental health issues. And, uh, you know, nearly every episode he shares... Uh, advice and thoughts and insights into how to better manage your mental health and this is coming from a guy who's a very talented musician and comedian and comedy guy and also quite a well-educated guy if you listen to him um, and he also curses a lot you know he he doesn't shy away from using the cunt word and he has a little limerick accent um, and as I said he has hundreds of thousands of listeners more than probably most shows that take advertising on radio but uh, he curses and he talks about mental illness and so nobody's prepared to sponsor him which is just really sad and weird and so you know blind boy himself has a patreon account and he urges people he he, he says this podcast is totally supported by you the listener so I'm only a blind boy and I only rely on you, the listener, for money through my Patreon account. So if you wouldn't mind 
uh, putting some money into my Patreon account, that'd be great. Sorry, it's a bad impression of Blind Boy, those of you that know. But anyway, Blind Boy, lots of people. Sam Harris, I think until recently, most of the big podcasters have a Patreon account. It's basically a way of trying to circumvent selling out to a big media company or selling out to a big podcasting company. So it's a cottage industry. So when I ask you to subscribe to my podcast, if you're a listener, I'm kind of saying, look, you'd pay for a newspaper, you pay for a cup of coffee, you pay for delivery of magazines to your home sometimes. And I'm looking for you to basically subscribe to my podcast as one of the things that you subscribe to. There's going to be some kind of killer app coming I was working on one or thinking about one recently where imagine if on your phone you were able to, as you're listening to something or as you're surfing a web page, you can surreptitiously in the corner just hit a button. And every time you hit that button, you know, maybe 25 cent from your account or 50 cent or whatever way you actually set it up goes to whatever that web page is. So there'll be some kind of, or the, the you know, the, the, the mobile te- technology needs to go to some place where you can better reward and pay content providers that you rate value care for want to support want to keep going so yeah just a you know word of thanks to those who already have and you know another just shout out to those of you who've been thinking about it or those of you who don't know how it all works and it's all too hard it's not too hard it'll take about three minutes and all you got to do is go to the website www.patreon.com forward slash shawnee b it's a forward slash or a backslash, I can't remember which. And it'll take about three minutes. You've got to give your credit card details. They won't spam you. It's just like signing up to a bank or buying something on Amazon. Okay, on to today's show. The, today's show was recorded sometime last year and had major sound uh, problems attached to it. And it's been fairly worked on for quite a bit of time. I think it's it works okay now. We were in a We were in a pub in a beer garden. And just as we sat down, uh, all hell started breaking loose with builders and fire engines and guys with hammers and stuff. So it was kind of com- it was comedic to actually record, but most of the uh, noise has been thankfully removed. Talking to a guy called Christopher Johnson today. He's a kind of shy guy, but at the time of the recording, I was so kind of maybe distracted by the ambient noise situation that I kind of feel I missed quite how profound some of his stuff has been. And I only, I only recovered that myself in the edit. He talks an awful lot about what motivates him. How do you stay an artist for so long in what is a very unpredictable business in terms of getting paid, getting money? It's even, they don't even have their own Patreon account. And um, he's a very kind and uh, considered guy who was born in Africa and has lived a very interesting life. So, without further ado, I will cut to a rather noisy pub in London for Christopher Johnson. Thanks again for all your support. I'm with Shawnee B coming to you from Putney in London today. Uh, we're outside in a beer garden in a pub called the Fox and Hounds, and there's going to be lots of little ambient uh, sounds just as we are about to start. Some guys kicked off with a drill somewhere, so apologies if it's a bit noisy today. Very interesting guest. My first is Zimbabwe, and I don't know whether he considers himself Zimbabwe, he's born there. He's a, an artist, uh, painter, very, very well regarded in England, landscape and figures primarily, 
Uh, he's shown all over the world. He's been compared to Van Gogh, do you believe, or Van Gogh. I don't know whether which which of those were. So it's European side Van Gogh. <laughs> and Turner, Constable, Gainsborough have been some of his inspirations. And welcome to the podcast, Christopher Johnson. How are you, sir? Very well, thank you, Sean. Thank you for coming on your first podcast. Thank you. (laughs) No nerves. (laughs) So you were born in uh, Rhodesia in the 60s, Ian Smith and all that. That's right. What was it like growing up there? Oh, well, it was a wonderful place to grow up. It was still quite, um, could you say, untamed in a way. (laughs) It was a colony, but it was still felt wild enough to be interesting. It's probably even slightly more wild now in a way, but... uh, there was a civil war on the horizon and becoming more and more prevalent whilst I got into my teens. But I grew up on a farm. It was a wonderful, open, uh, sunny lifestyle. Did you have a lot of brothers and sisters? Or? No, I, I discovered a whole lot later on. But, oh, uh, really? <laughs> Your father was a bit of a Lazario, was he? <laughs> <laughs> but um, no, I, I was an only child. Oh. Yeah. Okay, again, I, I say it a lot on the podcast, the amount of only children I've had are very, very strange. Yeah? Not by, by um, design, it's by accident. A lot of people are only children. Interesting. Um, I've, uh, you, you can uh, see Christopher's work on ChristopherJohnsonArt.com, which uh, will give you a flavor for the sort of stuff he does. He's very famous for his landscapes, African landscapes, which I want to talk to you about first, which are lovely in, in, for me, and I'm not an art critic, so... But I, I found what was very interesting about them was your use of the smallness of people, the vastness of the continent. Is that uh-huh. fair or not? Yeah, I think, um, you know, when I, perhaps even before, but when I was at art school, I was very interested in people like the German romantic painters, like Caspar David Friedrich, who used to pit the smallness of humans against the infinity of the universe. And I think that's something that... I identified with because in Africa you really feel that the yes. sort of very big open skies and your kind of aloneness in the landscape in a way. There's very few buildings in those landscapes. It's all the, the savanna. Then, you, but you can see a lot of figures. You're, you're, one of your famous ones is the African bus stop painting. Tell me a little bit about the origin. Yeah, in Africa, I just I love the the whole feeling of movement and color. The, the just the feeling of activity, just the kind of juxtaposition of colors, motion, and there just seem to be so many different themes and I used to go there with a chap I, I knew who used to work for us there he would help me set up and then everyone would come and just stare straight at you because so, you're a novelty yeah. you know, so you can't see anything and so then you just wait for one person who is in the crowd to call another person stupid and then a fight would break up and then all the concentration would be on the fight and, and you had a clear view quickly. <laughs> <laughs> you're famous for going I read somewhere going to your place and going back to it over and over again to finish your painting, which is rare, right? Uh, it might be. I do, I, um, I'm sure there are some artists who do the same. I had a studio for a little bit in Venice over two quite sort of very happy long summers, and then in Florence for a many, much longer time. So I used to bring the paintings back to England and work on them, and then i take them off quite often over back the up there. And, the idea uh, that a painting's never finished, just does. Yes, it, 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 you're always trying to find something new, and you're seeing something which irritates you. I remember uh, Edvard Munch when I went to see his gallery in Oslo. He had thousands that he just wouldn't let out because he was yeah. He couldn't work work out a time to give them up and set it ready. Yes, I think I've just finished one which has been going for about nine years. Really? And that's for Florence. Part of the problem is that actually I'm struggling to put any more paint on it. <laughs> so, 
<laughs> what took you? Uh, what, what, what did you love so much about Florence? Well, I, in fact, that's where I wanted to study. When I was growing up, we had to do a little bit of national service at the end of our schooling, and it was always my intention at the end of that to go and study in Florence. Fortunately, the Civil War finished whilst I was serving, and I was allowed to go to university, but that had to be South Africa, and so I studied there. In a way, I got my wish because uh, many years later, a friend moved to Florence, he and his wife, and they enabled me to basically have a studio there, you know, from 2002 until about 2011 or so. Yeah. Were you, yeah. So when you were going back to your sort of uh, timeline, were you always artistic as a kid? Yeah, yeah I think that, that was um, really, I think what precipitated it was uh, when I was about nine years old, I had um, rheumatic fever. And so I was just stuck in bed and I, I, could, I wasn't allowed to get up. So I would read and then I'd start doing drawings of planes, you know, typical of a kid from that age, you know, remembering the Second World War. So you're always drawing sort of the English aircraft shooting down the Germans, you know. And then a cat that I was given for a birthday got a bit bored of looking at these things. So I thought, well, I ought to try and broaden the repertoire. And I started drawing portraits and, and that got me into it and then I had a, a year over here went with my parents and uh, in England and they took me all around art galleries and I decided pretty much by then that's what I wanted to do. Was it quite a solitary childhood you had? Uh, yes. So and you mentioned the cat. Right? Yeah. Was it, were, you, were you in a remote farmstead? Or well uh, initially it was a farm and then we had problems with drought and we had to give up the farm. We moved to a school where my father was a teacher, and actually that was the, the best possible environment because it, there were lots of staff children there as yeah. well, and, uh, and I made very good friends with at least two others. We spent most of our time baiting the rest of them. So well, You said you did service. You did service in the Rhodesian military, did you? Yes, very briefly. What there. was that like? I, I wasn't in for long enough to write anything particularly interesting about it, but I think I was in long enough to realize that actually I wasn't really... Going to be much help. Well, I wasn't going to be much help to the military, no. Right. Yeah. And then, were you ca- was your family caught up in the whole end of days there when, when Ian Smith did, had uh, to step down and all that? In a, in, in a sense, yes. I mean, I think um, because a lot of people left, a lot of expertise left, that was really the reason for my parents leaving because my mother was <laughs> ill with cancer, so we had to. Um, yeah, basically, you know, tr- get her treatment until... And they and they died, in fact, both of them shortly after that. So in South Africa? In South Africa, yeah. Okay, and, and then that's when you moved to London, was it? So I had about... I was taken up by a gallery there, a very nice gallery called the Everard Reed Gallery after university, and they showed my work, got me going, and, and then I decided to come over here on holiday just to see some friends. And I was offered some exhibitions shortly after I got here, and I thought, well... That's encouraging enough for me to want to see how where it goes takes me. So was that stage portrait portraiture work? That you no, were I I did portraits later, and I, in fact, it was a series of portrait commissions which gave me the opportunity to come here. I had to um, do a portrait of one of the previous governors of Rhodesia, Humphrey Gibbs. He was a very fine-looking man, and at the end of the the last sitting, however many sittings there were, he had a terrible hunch because he was in his 80s by then. And I gave him two very stiff gin and tonics. I said, Sir Humphrey, would you like to see the portrait? He said, oh, I might as well. So I showed him the portrait, and he said, you made me look like a bloody gorilla. <laughs> I said, I'm very sorry, Sir Humphrey. He said, well, never mind. You may as well paint my wife. <laughs> what is it about uh, your approach? How do you approach portraits? You just said there was a number of sittings. Have you ever, have you ever had to paint someone? I can't just can't. 
because you can't get them. Or, uh, I should think most of my portrait commissions <laughs> were like that. Apart from the gorilla. <laughs> Uh, I, yeah, I oh, found you said you're wearing a gorilla suit, <laughs> Sir Humphrey. <laughs> uh, um, yeah, but a portrait, it's, it's, it's something that I would love to come back to, but not in a commissioned sense in terms of... I think at the time it was perfect for me because I was right for that kind of portrait at that time. Right. But I, I quickly. Are these the sort of portraits that you see hanging in majestic houses with a yeah. foot on a lion? Well, that's sort of. It's a sort of, you know, like um, I had to paint quite a few people to do with the school that yeah. I was at. It's something I found really interesting at the time, and I just found it really interesting meeting the people. Yeah, you know, well, because that's the, a bit like what I do. Yes. I'm doing a portrait <laughs> of you today. <laughs> well, these people, no, they, they really lived, a lot of them, and, um, yeah. and they had very interesting lives. And, and, um, I and have a very embarrassing portrait story. Yeah. So when I was living in New York, there was a, a very well-regarded uh, artist over there. I think you'd like her work called Suzanne Unrain. And it was during the during the crash, and she was finding it really hard to get money. Yeah. I remember being out, and I was drunk one night, and I said, well, paint me. I'll give yeah. you a grand for your painting. And she goes, no, my paintings are normally 10 grand. And I said, well, how hungry are you? you know? <laughs> I mean, it was all made as a kind of joke. And then she kind of went, yeah, okay. And then I realized, oh, but I don't want just any old thing from the back of your bike shed or whatever. Yeah. So I, I said, it's this face, and I, I think I was drinking a gin and tonic. Okay. And she said, okay. And then she said to me, okay, you know, and I, I forgot about it. And it was one of those drunken nights where you think she won't remember. Anyway, next yeah. day, uh, he's still up for doing the portrait. you got to come around to my studio. So I went around to his studio, and it was one of the classic Lower East Side, you know, artists, oh, very cool, grungy. And she asked me to take off my clothes. And I thought, hello. <laughs> so I started manly disclosures, not just the top. <laughs> oh, sorry. So, so I, took, I, took, I took my top off and she took yeah. all these photographs on me. And okay. I never heard from her for uh-huh. about four or five months. Yeah. Thinking, but I was going, Jesus, Sean, for fuck's sake, you just asked for a portrait of yourself. How more narcissistic can you be? Yes. <laughs> I don't, well, I'm doing her a favour. I can always just put it in the bin if I don't like, you know, hide it from everyone. Put it in the attic while it ages. And, and um, I think the five months later, she goes, right, your portrait's ready. So I went down to get it, and it was brilliant. It didn't, yeah. First of all, it didn't really look like me. It was, okay. it, it was like I was submerged underwater. Right. Which was a kind of thing to to. <laughs> I, uh, my friends called it Sean the Baptist. Um, and I had a big beard and long hair. And I have a nipple. And it's, like, that's, that's kind of, it's very good, though. It's very good. I like it. I love it a lot. It's still in storage. Um, one of the other things, so you, you, you have a number of places. You talked about Florence. Uh, you also love Greece, and I looked at mm. your Greece. I love Greece, so I've been oh. I've been going to and from Greece maybe twenty times in oh, my life. I gosh. go to Eos. That's the first one I kind of fell in love with. And I still go back there a bit. It's full of young people. It's a lovely island. One of the things I was really taken by your Greek paintings was the amount of red. Yes, because when you think about Greece, particularly the islands, it's whites and blues and greens, and there's very little red. But nearly all of your Greek paintings have white quite strong red red hues in them. Is, there, yeah. is that me just noticing that? Or is there anything behind that? No, it's an interesting observation. Well, I suppose that the because there is a lot of green yes. on the Ionian Islands, you know, on Earth. Oh, that's where you were, okay. Uh, I went to Kefalonia. Yes. Okay, yeah. Okay. So those I, uh, islands have... Uh, the Pine tree. Yeah. So I, I really, because the, the, the way that I work is I try and use, you know, colour and opposites and sometimes and 
And so that's what I have as a base color quite often. I like it to reverberate against the greens and the other colors. It uh, shoots up the warmth of the painting as well. Yeah, but your paint, your painting style is very warm. Yeah. Can that be fair? Yes. Yeah. You, know, you have a lot of reds, yellows. It's a lot of it's sort of sunsetty. Yeah. And, and uh, Scotland as well is another place that you. you I love. To, yes, yeah. I love Scotland. For some reason, I feel very at home there. It reminds me of a certain, and this will sound very odd, a certain part of Zimbabwe in the in the Eastern Highlands. I love it as a subject. Fantastic. So, how do you do? You make a decision to. I'm going to Scotland for two weeks to paint some landscapes. Or how do you how do you decide? Right, I'm going to start working a new work. Or how, how does that process? Combination. Go? I mean, I think I suppose there are places which I like painting in, and if an opportunity presents itself, perhaps through a commission or gallery saying, "Oh, won't you come up and do some work?" That quite often ends up being an instigator. But also just um, the subjects like Greece or Scotland. Yeah, there'll, there'll be a, be a time, and I'll probably just feel, "Gosh, I'd love to." to be there and I'll see if I can't get there and, and, and do a have series of things. Have you come to Ireland at all? I, do you know, the part I really want to see of Ireland is Connemara yeah. around there. I was going to say there. I'd love to go there. So that's very unique in terms of stone, old stone famine walls, dry walls. That's yeah. lasted hundreds and hundreds of years and very barren as well. Um, but a very different sort of light uh-huh. being around. It's kind of grey and dreary and windswept and green and rainy but yeah I think you, I, I'd I love think to see it I think you yeah. love it out there you say nature is uh, the greatest teacher I, I heard you quoted saying that once explain what you mean by that well humans have a kind of a finite capacity in terms of what they can teach you and, and nature is constantly changing every year you see it and you see it differently and it throws up uh, something new each time whether it's you know human nature or just nature, nature, nature it, that's in a way what I go back to to be able to sort of help me try and move forward or correct what I'm doing in a way. So, what, have you an example of how that process worked for you, where you you need to say I had to go back to it? All the time, all the time, all the time, because you know even like in Florence, for example, I go I'll go back, but a painting obviously a, a scene doesn't say static, so you go back with. The painting that you were trying to correct and trying to get what it was that was missing and then in front of you is something completely new and that's the difference between a painting and a photograph you know a photograph captures an instant a painting can capture a life you know a lifetime yeah i like it for that so one of the i think the context you made that statement in was you you, you have a point of view on the sort of uh, look for the plastic bit where they broke all the artists coming out of college off the mold um, that you, 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 you have this view, which I tend to agree, not to, I'm, I mean, not an artist, but in, say a lot of the creative endeavors I've been involved in filmmaking, uh, advertising, you get taught, but you get taught that this is right and this is wrong. And you almost get the, a lot of kids get the sort of the spark beaten out of them uh, and, and they end up almost, I think you're they're just sort of copying what other people do. I think it's quite hard in a way because really art school they'll give you the beginnings of a guide and then you spend as many years at art school you spend out when you've left there trying to unlearn all that you've learned so that you can sort of become more your own person and that is a surprisingly long uh, exercise you know some people are very lucky and they might get to it quite quickly but they're rare and most people take I think a long time before they begin to get to grips with who they are as a painter. Is it important though to know 
through school what you must zag away from, if you know what I mean. Is it important to know the technicalities and the way other people did it in order for you to then blossom as your own thing? Or would you would you believe that people should be more encouraged from a young age to express themselves, express their own identity? Well, I, th- I think uh, I think it's a lot to put on young people just to to throw them into a kind of a, a vacuum and just say you know work it out. I think it helps to be able to give them something to bounce their ideas off or react to, react against. Uh, there has to be a kind of a structure, and the, and there has to be some kind of a guide. Uh, otherwise, really, what's the point? You know, what are you going for? I have had a lot of people who. Have- who are very critical, especially artists like that on the show, about their time in art college, where they felt that they they were they were uh, suppressed. Would be the word. They're, 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 they they felt their own creativity was suppressed in college. And right. They they they've always kind of said to me that is not right. It's probably right if you're a surgeon or, or, or a rocket scientist. No, you take the heart out, not the liver. But, 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 but you know, um, with art, there's a certain truth in the idea that if those who can't do teach, <laughs> and, uh, yeah, and you end up with teachers who are like slightly bitter, <laughs> twisted, just telling you know. I mean, I'm, apologies yes. to every art school in the world here, by the way. But I'm just trying to tease that one out. Like, is there yeah. is there a need for a sort of a restructuring of how art is taught? Do you think? I'm probably not the best person to speak to about that because I haven't really had much to do with art colleges since I left art school and I trained in South Africa and I think I was quite lucky with the people who taught me. They were practicing at painters, all of them, and they had various points of view and I think that was probably the most surprising thing, though it must be the most obvious thing as you get older, is understanding that different points of view can be right simultaneously and learning to grab hold of that was difficult but actually that was the most informative thing because you know even in oneself you're rallying against conflicting points of view and that's fine and it keeps on keeps rejuvenating do you have like a sort of a central if I look at your art and again as I said I'm not a critic but I mean I look at it and I see uh, almost uh, escaping from from human life into nature coming yeah. through I see a kind of a, people don't really matter in, your, in, in most of your landscape work and the landscape work yes. yes there's not a huge amount of man-made things yeah and anything that is there is incidental as I sort of was referring to when I looked at your South African stuff is there a kind of an attempt an escape isn't there What's, what, what is the kind of core or have you ever thought about it I'm sure you have of, of what you believe your work meant to me? Good question. I do, I suppose, I think silence is quite important to me. Yes, okay. Yeah. Yeah. So, being Mm. in a place which is sufficiently remote, to let your eyes almost hear it, see it in a way. Yeah. It's a bit like fishing. Yes, probably, yeah, exactly. And and it's a very good analogy. And, and you know, you're throwing lines out the whole time. And more often than not, coming back to the place. I looking think looking for things and yeah. looking for clues and yes. you know, flies up. Are you are you are you uh, are you very happy in your own company and being apart from people for quite 
for time? Or? I, I love human company, yeah. but I, I, it does seem, I suppose I've got used to, it takes time, I think, as a painter to get used to understanding how, what a lonely profession it is. Yeah. It is a lonely profession. It has to be. Yeah. And as I, you know, I think for writers and various other you know, creative people, it, ha it has to be too. But, uh, yeah, and that has almost become a necessity in a way for me to create. I mean, I paint figures, I paint nudes as well, and then I so have the company nice of, well, yeah. of, uh, of... Slightly modern, yes. Digliani-esque. I've <laughs> probably got his name wrong. Apologies, I think he's dead. <laughs> but um, well, they're lovely because they're very bright colours and they're just very simple lines. I yeah. I really like really liked them. So what do you make of the uh, Tracy Emin and her unmade bed and people cutting sharks in half and sticking... <laughs> crucifixes and piss and all that stuff yeah. how do you feel about the sort of it's not my area at all they've been very clever in the way that they've had to manage an aspect of the art world and they've done it very successfully for themselves their art has been outmaneuvering the art business yes they're way. grifters kind of thing. Yeah. yeah I mean Bank we're, we're doing this interview a couple, few weeks after Banksy's famous uh, which I loved uh -huh. uh, shredded painting Sotheby's, I think it was, in London, which, uh, first of all, if you were the guy who bought it, it doesn't really matter because you've got shitloads of money you're spending on that, which is probably Banks' point of view. But secondly, it's kind of almost worth more now that he did it. And I think it broke down halfway through. So yes. Yeah, yeah. I mean, was there any chance Sotheby's were in on that? I should think so. Yeah, so do I. I, mean, I, I, I it was right down to there was a hooded character scene leaving, yes. the, leaving yes. the premises. Yeah. It was like a cartoon. Scooby-Doo came in and uncovered him or something. <laughs> <laughs> but like, what do you make of it? We say, yeah, you're right. There's a sort of a stunt-like nature to what they're doing. And people like Charles Saatchi arrive every now and then with big wads of cash and splurge it on. But there's a, there's, and I can see why Charles Saatchi would be the sort of guy. Because uh, he, he, he was a, he was a uh, sort of a... An iconoclast in the ad business mm. as well. I have this sense that they're that they're not going to be as famous in two hundred years. I I I've I've funny feel that there is a sort of a faddish nature, even down to things like Warhol and, and maybe not Warhol, but certainly a lot of the a lot a lot of them will probably not pass the time test. Yeah, I I think um, for all of us, who knows who what will happen later on. Well, every painter makes money uh, when they're dead. You have to yes, die first. Right? Yes, I know. It's a, <laughs> a lot of people have been encouraging me to do so, but... <laughs> you know what you need, Christopher. <laughs> it's quite often, unhelpfully, the opening gambit to a conversation when you meet someone as well. But, um, yeah, I, I mean, I think that they, the substance of their work maybe will feel a bit too much to do with the time, which will have soon passed in yes. 200 years' time, and it will it will lose its context and understanding. Whereas maybe people who are painting and leaving something, a mark of something behind in a, you know, a more traditional, concretized way uh, might stand a better chance. Perhaps. Does that drive you a little bit as a sort of motivation, the fact that you, you, you are leaving these permanent signals that say, hey, I was here? Uh, yes, I suppose it, it does. I think more so as you get older and you realize that time running out yeah. yeah and you want to be able to but well, I want to be able to try and see how I, I manage different different th aspects of my work see where it's leading to try and put down as much as possible and you make you try and make your life as clean and as empty as possible so that you have the time to do it yeah. explain how you way. do that 
I think you just you don't you other things don't aren't allowed to intrude. Yeah. Well, yeah, and I think it's a, you become sort of quite minimalist in a way in terms of the way you, you, your focus is basically just on your on your craft, on your uh, the energy you put into your work. Yeah. Do you have a feeling that you would ever radically change your style just to see what happens, or would you do you feel more comfortable working? I mean, you have quite a good range, but would, would you? Yes. Would you ever think of? going a pop art route or doing something crazy like that or is that does that feel very scary or no I mean I think inappropriate? It, I felt if I felt it was necessary I'm sure I'd do it if it felt right for the painting for what I was doing yes um, but uh, I suppose one's always wanting to be more ambitious yeah. and try and stretch oneself further and further and yeah there's plenty of room for me to do that what, what was the time when you said to yourself like where were you and was it how were you feeling? You said, okay, I'm really going to have a go at doing this as my whole life's work and my career. Because a lot of artists um, tend to do art almost some, you know, as a hobby or a pastime or on top of something else. Yeah. Whereas uh, you, you, you went straight in, right? Um, I did. I mean, I had ideas. There was a period for a bit of time where I wanted to be a singer as well. Ah, lounge singer? <laughs> Tenor? <laughs> A tenor. Yeah, I was a tenor, and oh. and I and I wanted to do it, and I trained and everything, and yeah. and and I thought, you know, for a bit I would I might try and do it, but um, yeah, I, I think it was easier for me because I hadn't done sufficient training. Yeah. When my parents died, I basically, you know, suddenly had to make a a living in a completely different way, and and um, it was easier for me to paint and and earn money from that. Yeah. It's a very erratic income. Yeah. Stream, though. Yes, get, it is. Does that get scary sometimes, or have you ever, have you ever like been going, oh shit, things are really bad now? Like during the like, I presume when the economic crashes happen, yeah. people don't buy art, right? Yeah. No, it is. It's sort of you know. I mean, yeah. It it it's very up and down, but um, I suppose you you know you learn to live. Over time, you learn to live hard, hard to live with it, I suppose. Yeah. And um, and and helpfully, you know, you're doing something which you love yes. enough to be able to say, well, okay, I know it's not happening at the moment, but it's not going to stop me from carrying on. It's much more difficult when you you know you're not sure about what you're doing. That would is, that, you. is a lot of this, the 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 uh, ability to make it financially a bad sticking to your guns and being disciplined and, and, and not going, oh crap, I'll get a job in a burger shop or whatever just to pay the bills, you know. Well, everyone has their own different routes and I, and I wouldn't like to tell uh, anyone. Yeah, yeah, no, yeah, yeah. I wouldn't. And you quickly find which works works for you. When people have been most keen that, you know, I should probably think about getting another job. It's a very good time with that empty time and pressured time. And, and that's really when you... You can probably make some of the most vital decisions about your work. You know. <laughs> and away from art, do you, how do you feel about the? I mean, you know, you've you've grown up in a in a career that's observing almost everything that's not the kind of rabble and all the news and all that sort of stuff that's around. How do you view the world just as a citizen? Do you have? Are you pessimistic or optimistic at the moment? Or do you think it doesn't matter? Are you nihilistic? Oh, it's a it's a very 
it's a very fraught, tense time yes. now. You know, it's um, it's quite an un, unpalatable time for a lot of a lot of countries. It's it's very tense. Yeah, I do feel apprehensive. I do feel apprehensive, and in a funny kind of way, I suppose. That and that's where I feel. Not what I specifically do, though I hope so, but what I think art does uh, is to give people that period of that silence, that reflection. You know, just just to hesitate before making decisions and to to think that how they might reflect on on all of us. That's I think that silence, that point of complete quietness and just looking and observation, hesitation is, is quite important. I mean, do you think art is under threat at the moment? In terms of, just from exactly what you said, this idea that it is sort of a salve to mayhem, but that, that we're, the, tech, the march of technology could yeah, say, the, the, the way tech, cow gum is no longer, yes. any oil paints would be no longer. <laughs> yeah, I, I um, you know, we're all, we're taking more photographs than we've ever yeah. taken. We're looking more, probably, at things than we ever have before, but we're not seeing in the same way. And I think that's probably what goes out the window. Automatically taking a photograph when you go to a gallery of a painting doesn't mean that you've looked at it. doesn't mean that you've seen it and understood it. But you somehow there's an idea that you've appropriated it by taking a photograph. So it's a part of you. It hasn't even begun to be a part of you until you really take the time to take a breath in front of it and look at it properly. Yeah. I've, I've developed a new tactic when I go to art galleries, which is I always try and find a tour. Yeah. And I go with the tour guide. Uh-huh. And, you know, she zips through the entire museum in an hour, stopping at this painting, that painting, this painting. And she tells me the ones that are important. And I'm like, great. And I can spend 10 minutes yes. on one painting, which I find far more spirit lifting and, and, and intellectually yeah. Simulating than going around with a pair of headphones on, listening to whatever this guy painted. Because I, I, I get bored and I can't see it. I mean, I'm even surprised at some of the things I said about you. I didn't cog that off anyone. That was me just looking yeah. at your work. And I was going, he's probably going to go with this guy. I don't know. As you would probably say, it's in the eye of the beholder. So it's you know whatever people take out of your art. But mm. I find out it's a good tip for anyone who's not used to going to art galleries and, and even museums where you can just go around with someone who's really knowledgeable on the subject sure. and you could just learn so much. Um, do you still have a, a part of your heart in Africa? Do you have any view on whether that's going to get better? Is it getting better? Uh, well, it get worse before it gets better? Gosh, you know, I think, I suppose, um, Africa is just a, it's a very surprising, unpredictable continent. Yeah, yeah. I'm sure it will get better. Not when we expect it to, yeah. but when it when it's ready to. But, yeah, I, it, it's the place where I feel the most at home in myself. I think. Okay, really? yeah. So do you go back to? Uh, uh, no, no, and actually, I haven't been back for a very long time. Okay, so is it is part of that a, a nostalgic memory that you have? It is that. Yeah, it is. I mean, I also feel the same in Greece. Right. For that okay. Well, you know, what brought you to? What, what, what was the big draw in Greece? Greece? Well, some friends who have a house there, okay. and they very generously have let me go and Use stay there and okay. paint there. Yeah. And uh, they're a big sort of bustling. That's on Ithaca. On Ithaca. Yeah, which is a famous. Uh, yeah. Uh, it was a, this is it, it, exactly. Yes. 
Very good. What last question for you? What would you say to the younger you? People go back and whisper to the younger you. Pick an age for when you're drawing those Spitfires. When I was drawing those Spitfires. Some time around there. My word. Sounds really trite in a kind of a way, but I think I'd probably just say no. Just grab hold of life and take hold of it by the horns and all of its magnificence and just go for it. Yeah, don't, don't, in that way, don't hesitate. Just throw yourself into it and, and, and live it. Chris Rich Johnson, thanks for being on the Pine Ridge 20 beat. You keep living it, keep going for it. And uh, as I said, there'll be links at the po- uh, bottom of the podcast to Christopher's work. So buy some. He's an artist. Everyone likes to be sent their paintings. Look after yourself. Bless you, Sean. Thank you. Oh.